On this episode, Italy, pasta, master of none, and the female gaze. Now you can't get much better than that. This is Pop Culture Confidential. I'm Christina. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's Pop Culture Confidential that's just jam-packed with good stuff. Later, I talk to journalist and managing editor at The Nerdist, Alicia Lutz, about the much-awaited premiere of Wonder Woman. We also talk about the female gaze in TV and film right now and how sex scenes are getting a slightly different perspective. And she has an interesting take on this season's many religious narratives and television drama. But first, let's talk about another form of worship, food. I actually came across my first guest, Katie Parla, through one of my favorites, Aziz Ansari and his brilliant show, Master of None, that he created with Alan Yang. Master of None is a semi-autobiographical comedy, kind of in the style of Louis. The main character, Dev, played by Ansari, is born in the U.S. to Indian parents, and they're played brilliantly by Ansari's real mother and father on the show. We follow Dev's friends, his love life, and lots and lots of restaurants and food, seemingly Aziz Ansari's personal passion. After the well-received season ended in 2015, Aziz Ansari took a break. He decided to leave New York and move to Italy, where he studied pasta making in a small shop in Modena. Somewhere around this time, I read him mentioning Katie Parla. Katie Parla is a New Jersey-born, Rome-based culinary writer and journalist. She's written for The New York Times, The Guardian, Condé Nast, and many more. She's also the author of the book Tasting Rome, Fresh Flavors and Forgotten Recipes from the Ancient City. I can safely say that for the past few years, my husband and I, who's half Italian, have followed her restaurant tips in Rome, and each one is pretty great. I'm a terrible cook, but I've even tried my hand at making some of the great Roman dishes in her book. What I think is particularly interesting about Katie Parla is that she has a larger take on Italian food. She has a master's degree in Italian gastronomic culture from the University of Rome, and she talks about the history and the geopolitics of Italian food systems, different food cultures in different areas of Rome, like the Jewish food culture in the city, for example. And of course, she writes about restaurants and the traditional Italian cooking in depth. And Italian cooking is a huge part of the second season of Master of None. Aziz Ansari and the team filmed the season in Modena, Italy, seemingly mirroring Ansari's time there with the character Dev learning to make pasta and taking a break from New York. And Katie Parla was there, working as dialect coach and food concierge for the production, basically making sure that they had the best of the best of Italian food culture from Modena and the region. And you can really see their love of Italy and cuisine on this show. The first two Italian episodes are literally a love letter to Italy, to Vittorio De Sica, the bicycle thief, and lots and lots of wonderful Italian cooking. Katie Parla talked to me from Matera, where she's hard at work on her new book about the food of southern Italy. We talk about Roman cooking, the Italian-American food culture, master of none and the allure of pasta making, and she even gives us a few of her favorite restaurant tips in Rome. Katie Parla, thank you so much for talking to me. It's such a huge pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
tell me a little bit about your Italian journey. Um, I'm talking to you now. You're in Matera. You're, I guess you're working on your book there, but you are a New Jersey girl originally. How did you sort of end up in Rome? Do you have Italian heritage? Yeah, my great-great-grandparents are actually from Italy, from Sicily and near Matera and left for New York and New Jersey just after Italian unification. So my Italian roots are you know, pretty deep into my family tree. And when I first visited Italy, when I was you know, a sophomore in high school, I was totally shocked at how different the culture here in Italy was from the Italian-American culture I grew up with. So I was like, I have to know everything about Italy now. So I should obviously move there. And my mom, of course, made me finish high school and college <laughs> first, but I moved right after college and um, you know, started working in sort of culture and art and, and food. And now food is all-consuming beverages, too. What would you say are those main differences between the sort of Italian culture in Italy and the American Italian that you grew up in? Well, you know, I grew up eating, just a sort of banal example, like spaghetti and meatballs, um, which in Italy, as you know, are actually two separate plates. The spaghetti is your primo, the meatballs are your secondo. Mm -hmm. They don't show up on the same, you know, the same plate at all. Um, but, you know, even a more, I think a more sort of interesting um Revelation was how heavy Italian American food is versus how light Italian regional cuisines can be. I mean, obviously we eat a lot of fried food here, so not gonna not gonna lie about that. But um, you know, we eat sort of smaller portions of fried things. We tend to judge the quality of food based on its digestibility factor. Um, meanwhile, you know, I grew up eating all sorts of like quote unquote Italian style pizzas, but like you, you know, you have to take Pepto-Bismol or Tums after, um, because it's, you know, it's not really, it's not really food. It's like processed cheese on sort of bad tomato sauce on a sweet crust. It's, it's really dramatically different, even if the form appears to be the same. Right. That's interesting because my husband and I went to a show that's a restaurant that's actually featured on the second season of Master on Carbone in New York, which I guess is Italian-American oh, yeah. cuisine. And it was yes. wonderfully good, but we almost died of heart attacks after eating. It was so rich and so much. It was like cheese on literally everything. Yeah, the Italian-Americans do like their cheese and melted cheese. Grated. I mean, we'll take it any way we can get it. But that, that really is um, like the sort of feeling that you have at the end of a meal um, is important. And I think when I'm visiting places like Modena or Matera or Bari, you know, at the end of a meal, even if, I, if I've had every course, I don't want to feel sick. Right. And yeah, I think that like is a pretty like basic <laughs> quest to not feel sick at the end of a meal. <laughs> so what would you say when, when the Italian cooking came to the U.S., what were the sort of changes? Why did it why did it go in that direction? What Americanized it? I mean, there were a lot of a lot of factors. I mean, every cuisine is influenced by the economics and geography of its location. And a lot of people from Southern Italy were fleeing you know, the uh, economic devastation in the wake of unification. And they were fleeing from tiny rural villages where they lived in a sort of feudal system, farming the land, shepherding lambs and goats and raising cattle. And they were thrust into an urban environment. And certainly at the turn of the 20th century in Brooklyn and Queens, and even in Manhattan where many Italian immigrants settled, there were opportunities for farming, but they weren't able to balance sort of 
growing and sourcing their own foods with their economic means and the high demand of labor. You know, people were working a lot in order to, to just survive. So I think being divorced from ingredients um, mm. that are sort of natural to your regional cuisine makes you get creative, makes you substitute things. And food service is one of the professions that many immigrants, Italian and otherwise, go into, whether they're you know, professional cooks in the motherland or not. Um, and so it's almost as though like the uh, the Americanization of Italian food comes through both the sort of domestic creativity of cooks who need to make things that can feed their family with what's available and the the growth or the rise of uh, of sort of a, a restaurant based cuisine, which is homogenized throughout you know the tri-state area with similarities to Boston's or um, Buffalo's Italian American cuisine, but then each of those have their own sort of unique Italian American dishes that you might not find in the other cities. Right. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what is specific to Rome's cuisine? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Roman cuisine is a set of dishes. It's a collection of ingredients and food preparation methods that is unique to the Italian capital. So dishes like cacio e pepe and carbonara are uniquely Roman. Um, there are certain ways that we treat vegetables, either um, serving them raw with olive oil for digestive purposes or by cooking them until they sort of fall apart and break down. Um, the simmering of meat, especially pork cuts and tough cuts until they fall apart or the grilling of lamb. These are all really typical things in Rome. And you might find some, you know, cooked vegetables prepared in a similar way elsewhere. But, you know, there is sort of, sort of this Roman canon. And it's often communicated in the form of the name of a dish, like tripa alla romana, Roman-style tripe denotes a, a certain preparation that um, you don't find elsewhere. A tripe is prepared in Rome by simmering it in tomato sauce and then seasoning with pecorino and, and mint. And if you go to Venice or Florence or Naples, you're going to find uh, totally different preparations that really, even in spite of the globalized food economy, hasn't really changed much in past decades, which I think is really um, a testament to how entrenched local traditions still are. Right. And it's it, the, the dishes you describe, well, tribe I'm not sure of, but cacio pepe and, and pasta carbonara, they're, they're very wonderfully simple. It's like four or five ingredients, things, including salt and pepper. I mean, that that's what makes, for me, like they're so good over there. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, so I love sweets. So I think that like Sicilian sweets, which can be very complicated, are like the, the most amazing thing ever. Mm -hmm. So, but in the savory category, um, yeah, you often just find a couple of ingredients. Cacio e pepe literally is the ingredients list for the um, pasta dish. Cacio is pecorino romano. Uh, pepe is black pepper. You toss that with pasta and some pasta water. You've got your dish. You don't mess with it. You don't put butter in it. Um, you know, if Roman chefs want to get fancy, they might fry a couple of zucchini flowers and pop them on top. But essentially, you're dealing with a super simple um, set of ingredients. So if you cheat with those ingredients and use something inferior, you're not going to have a very good dish. Um, so that's the sort of double-edged sword. Right. How do you feel as, as a food writer? I have an, an example. I won't say specific names, but a very big American chef who recommended a cacio pep in a restaurant that we went to, and it was amazing. But then the next year we, we went there, it was completely 
tourist destroyed. <laughs> there was, you could just Oh, feel I know who the... you're talking about. Okay, good. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe so... it's fine to mention it, but, but, but uh, I was wondering, are there places you as a food writer keep as a secret? Because that's sort of depressing when that happens. I don't keep those things as a secret. And in fact, it sort of, it drives me crazy when, you know, people declare like they're going to conceal the name of a place. How cruel and arrogant. <laughs> I mean, Rome, Rome is a place where even an amazing restaurant has to struggle to survive. And margins are so narrow and labor is expensive and taxes are uh, crippling. So that like that concept, which I think goes well on TV, especially when someone like Anthony Bourdain goes to Roma Sparita and then right. doesn't <laughs> tell you the name, um, that is cute maybe in like a sort of television drama sense. But it does nothing to further the culture. And I'm a journalist. I'm, it's my responsibility to report on facts about Roman food culture. Um, they need attention. They're not just going to survive because people like them. I mean, this is the, you know, the 21st century. We've had a series of really serious economic crises in, in Italy, and that's affected even successful businesses. Right. So there's, that's my opinion. Very passionate about this topic. Oh, good, good. I'm glad I brought it up. So the fact that a restaurant sort of feels like uh, we can't even get in through the door because of there's no more locals there, um, it doesn't bother you? It does not bother me unless the restaurant modifies their approach to cooking in order to satisfy the sort of the bottom line. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. Roma Sparita is this place that does a very famous Cacio e Pepe. Which is what I was talking famous. about and didn't miss. Yes, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you knew that. <laughs> I know, I got you. Um, so, you know, after their huge success, because of course people researched which restaurant it was and found it was Roma Sparita, well, they started printing two menus and giving the English speakers a menu that had a 10% service charge, which is really, really unusual, like wildly unusual for a Roman restaurant. So charging essentially a tax to foreigners that's not applied universally um, is illegal. And um, therefore, I penned the perhaps not very like professionally titled from hit list to shit list, um, the Roma Spirita story, um, just to sort of communicate that uh, that shift, that change. So, mm -hmm. you know, if a place has a lot of press and therefore has a lot of foreign visitors, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that in and of itself. Um, you know, particularly if it keeps a place alive, because often there aren't local, there isn't local clientele to keep a place thriving. Right. Um, and that's just a, a fact of the modern food economy. People don't spend like they used to. Romans don't go out as frequently as they used to. When they do, they um, have many fewer courses. Um, this leads to often two seatings um, at a restaurant, whereas, you know, as you know from previous travels back in the day, you would have a uh, a booking and you would have the table for the night. That's not the case anymore. Places need to turn tables to survive. So, I mean, as long yeah, as the place doesn't and, yeah. decide, yeah. <laughs> as long as the place doesn't decide to sort of abdicate their responsibility to the client and be honest with them, then, then uh, I'm, you know, I'm no problem with the clientele becoming, becoming foreign in and of itself. If you were to recommend two places in Rome today, where, 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 what would you say? Can I tell you my top five? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my two favorite restaurants are um, 
Cesare al Casaletto, which is this amazing trattoria. Cesare opened the place like, you know, five decades ago, but a couple took it over in 2009. And Leonardo and Maria Pia do super tra- traditional Roman food with a very um, affordable but kind of creative wine list. Mm. Um, and then Rosholi, um, Salud Maria Rosholi. Um, and there you can get Gricha and Carbonara and Cacio e Pepe, all the sort of pillars of Roman pasta traditions. And then I always proceed those dishes with burrata and mortadella. Um, and then I would state that, you know, the best food in Rome isn't always at the restaurant table. And I encourage people to graze throughout the day and visit my other three top three spots um, are Pizzarium, a pizza by the slice joint. Pizza by the slice is Rome's classic fast food. Mm-hmm. It's amazing at Pizzarium. Mordier Vai is a sandwich stall in the Testaccio market run by a retired butcher and his wife, a retired chef. Um, and these two people make the most delicious simmered beef sandwiches and tongue with green sauce sandwiches. And it's just lovely food, super mm-hmm. simple for like three bucks. Um, and then Trapizzino. It's basically pizza cone, um, pizza, sourdough pizza that's uh, sort of cut into these triangular pieces and filled with um, bits of oxtail simmered um, with celery and tomato or um, chicken cacciatore or meatballs. So you get sort of Roman flavors, but in a smaller and more affordable package. Mm, so good. Now I want to go. <laughs> I know, I'm starving. I understand that after the first season of Master of None, Aziz Ansari decided to go off alone to Modena, Italy, to learn how to make pasta, essentially. And he started working in a small local restaurant just a couple years ago. Um, why Modena? I mean, Modena is a tiny, um, elegant, beautiful, isolated, in a way, place. Of course, lots of people converge on Modena to visit Austria Francescana, but then they leave. Um, so it, it retains this... And that's like a Michelin sort of uni- restaurant, unique character. Right? Yeah, Austria Francescana was number one in the world, according to San Pellegrino's list last year. It has three Michelin stars. It's sort of Massimo Bottura, the chef, is considered you know the premier Italian um, chef in the world. Um, and so many, many you know, food travelers go to Modena and then leave. But, you know, the town itself has such amazing food. Austria Juicy is so special. Um, Archer Wine Bar is amazing. And so I think in terms of anyone who wants to immerse themselves in a, you know, a typical city that's, that's sort of uncontaminated by mass tourism, Modena is the logical choice. Um, and, and what was your what's your role on the show this season? Well, my official role was dialect coach. Mm-hmm. So I spent time on set. Um, we, we filmed in, in Modena and um, Pienza and uh, the area of Valdorcha for two weeks, um, essentially um, making sure that Dev's Italian was comprehensible, but not too flawless. Because in, in the end, Dev, unlike Aziz, is not supposed to be fluent in Italian. Um, so, um, so that was sort of my job on paper, but, um, my unofficial title was food concierge. So I made sure that, you know, the whole, the whole gang, in addition to the, you know, vast, um, craft services, um, spread, they had all the most delicious cheeses and cured meats and, um, uh, best, you know, bread and sandwiches and, and all sorts of snacks on set that would allow them to immerse themselves in the food culture of Modena because when you're shooting a television show for, you know, 16 hours a day and then production meetings and things at another few hours a day, sort of miss out on the actual city life. So in through, through Modena's food, um, was able to sort of keep, you know, keep the whole, uh, the whole cast and crew, um, 
well really fed. a part of the city. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you can really see that because the first two episodes open in Modena really um, taking inspiration from Vittorio De Sica. It's black and white and he's making this amazing, amazing pasta. What would you say, what is Aziz Ansari's relationship to Italy? Why, why did he end up there? Um, I think pasta. Um, pasta is appealing to you know, so many people. Um, and when you encounter especially the the sort of handmade egg-based pastas of Emilia Romagna, there's nothing quite like, you know, eating a, a bowl of tortellini in brodo, like in Bologna or Modena. There's something so special about it. So I think um, the, the big appeal for Aziz and, and for me and, and others um, is um, those sort of connections that you make to the food, the dishes that that you you know sort of dream about and constantly want to experience again. Tim, one second. There's something wrong with mozzarella. Yep, this is what I thought. It's fucking delicious. We're gonna need another round. You got right? it. Hey, hold me back, Tim. Hold me back. Dinner number three. <laughs> what do you say? You and I have a heart attack tonight, huh? <laughs> that sounds pretty fun. I think you might really have one. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> I love it, man. Now a little birdie told me you spent some time in Italia. True or false? Uh, the little birdie was telling the truth. I lived in uh, Modena for a few months, learned how to make pasta. You're kidding me, Modena? Home of Tortellini and Brodo. You know, we went there a couple years ago with Jeff's Table. Best episode ever. You see that one? Yeah. Remember great. that fucking scene? Remember that scene where I'm sitting there with the old guy in the cafe with the hat? Ah, shit, man. I actually didn't see it. I just, you just seemed so fired up. I wanted to tell you I saw it. <laughs> I love it. I'll send you a link. All right. All right. Hey, Tim. Delicious. What the fuck is that mozzarella? <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you. I mean it. I'm inviting you to my next barbecue. You better be there, you son of a bitch. Is there a sort of secret to making pasta? Um, on the first show, you can see that the, the nonna is sort of separating the good ones from the bad ones. I mean, what is the sort of, is there, is there a little magic trick to it? I mean, I think there, there are two things at work. There is, um, you know, perfection through repetition. And um, I was just recently in... Bari, where women on you know um, this one this one narrow medieval street, they make orecchiette all day and into the evening every day, six days a week for decades. So of course, after sort of apprenticing and learning, you improve, you perfect your own sort of technique. But there's nothing you know. Practice is essential, and you need to you need to learn how the pasta should feel underneath your fingertips. But there is something else, and is I think when you the shape taste itself, You're the saying? shape, the consistency, mm-hmm. um, yeah. The so when I say that you need to know how the dough is supposed to feel underneath your fingers, like it's the same with bread baking. You can follow a recipe, but if you don't sort of feel the the proper hydration, I'm so sorry. I'm just getting attacked by a small dog. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll start over. <laughs> a very scary small dog. I apologize. Um, so when I think the the secret to making great pasta, especially you know the fresh egg baked pasta, uh, egg based pasta, is to just practice and and through repetition, um, you learn that you don't follow a recipe. In fact, many of the best pasta makers don't follow a recipe; they follow um, their intuition. Mm. Um, and in addition to like just learning the you know the techniques and and how the dough is supposed to feel, um, there's also you know that sort of extra mile when you taste pasta made by you know a certain person. Um, you know, regardless of their experience level, sometimes their skills, like their abilities are just natural. Um, and no amount of practice can, uh, can imitate that. So it's, I think a combination of two factors. Right. Right. 
Um, Master of None is, is sort of about a hip New York crowd, or sort of many, a diverse crowd, but still sort of a, a, a New York um, younger generation type. What, what is their relationship to food, you think, in our popular culture today? You know, in New York and in many American cities in the past, let's say, decade or so, um, eating really well, eating food made by professionals who have trained in the best kitchens has become more accessible than ever. Mm -hmm. So while there is this sort of like FOMO, like always wanting to be at the best spot, sort of like horrible trend of wanting to just like be at the coolest places that tend to be cool because those places have really good publicists. Um, <laughs> there is this sort of, um, I think, you know, maybe decade, maybe a little bit longer old, um, uh, approached by younger people to be immersed in in food and and you know wine also is a is a feature in this where we can finally in New York go to a place and have like incredible bottles of wine um, that don't cost thousands of dollars. I mean the the sort of traditional like you know French um, wine lists which were so prohibitive and and sort of so um, alienating to people like that's vanished. So we have young, young Psalms um, from all over, you know, all over the country, all over the world who want people to drink interesting things at prices they can afford. And, you know, chefs and kitchens doing a similar thing. Right. Um, so there is, you know, there is a sort of moment when, you know, middle-class people can afford to eat at restaurants in a way that before was really, um, was really sort of an elite, uh, an elite pursuit. Right. Which you can see a lot on the show and not only on this show and other shows where you the characters spend a lot of time in restaurants just moving the plot forward. That's where you meet your friends. That's what you talk about, sort of that thing. But what about making food at home? Um, is, is sort of this generation still as interested in creating huge feasts for families coming back, you think? I would say generally speaking, young Italians don't cook. No. They're oh, cooked for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're, yeah, someone cooks for them. Their granny, their mom, usually women. Um, there are, of course, people who are home cooks. This is a, this is loaded. I mean, I would definitely want to, I would want to like go to a certain like official resource, maybe the statistics Institute of Italy. Estat has some figures on this, but a lot of people, you know, even young people who have families, they don't, cook everything from scratch the way that they used to because women work and, you know, with increased dignity and economic autonomy, um, you know, women have, have, you know, often had to give up um, the culinary traditions and you can hardly blame them. And this is still a society in which women generally run all of the domestic features of the house, whether it's managing the finances and paying the bills to doing the shopping, to doing the laundry, um, it's still, you know, in spite of the fact that, um, you know, women have been sort of liberated from some of the sort of obligations of, of domestic life that is only being able to be a mother or a wife. Um, we haven't seen, you know, generally speaking, uh, men participate in a bigger way in home life. Yeah, so women people, are you know, doing both visit, home life and working full time. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, we do it all. Um, and, you know, I, I rarely visit. A supermarket. I, I go to the market um, in Testaccio to shop, and I'm generally the youngest person there by about 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, when I go to my supermarket to pick up, I don't know, tissues or whatever, water, um, the things that you know people my age are buying tend to be partially transformed 
foods, things that you might even just heat up in the oven. Um, Generally, I don't see a whole lot of fresh ingredients or things made by hand. They're more sort of factory made things. And supermarkets are a feature of of the food system um, that I referenced earlier. So while some young people might have gardens, that's rare, um, you're more likely to find older people like actually harvesting things or going to markets because it's more part of the the pre-1970s food traditions. If you're born after 1970, you grew up in a world of supermarkets and convenience. Right, right. Does that worry you in terms of Italian, the Italian food system? Yeah, totally. I mean, we've seen a similar trajectory in France. Um, and while there still are amazing French products, um, there also is much better infrastructure for moving those products from the countryside to the consumption capitals, whereas we really lack that. And, you know, during the research for my Southern Italy cookbook, um, I've really, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time with bakers and cheesemakers and shepherds and farmers and, and people who work the land. And their biggest challenge is having any type of return on their work because moving it from a remote, you know, mountain side in the Apennines to Naples or Bari or Rome or the consumption capital is so tedious and so difficult Mm -hmm. that they often just have to rely on local sale, which doesn't sustain them. Um, So I'm, I'm super concerned and, you know, I want through the book and through, um, you know, through my other work, to spotlight people who are doing really amazing things so that hopefully, um, you know, we can start having the serious conversation about how to save right, traditional right. Italian products in a, t- in a real way, not in a way that sort of industry mimics them and dilutes their character. Well, this has been so interesting. Hey, thank you so much for taking your time. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to Katie Parla. Her book is Tasting Rome, and you can get a bunch of her writing and reviews on katieparla.com. Master of None Season 2 is out now on Netflix, and don't miss it. And now switching gears a bit to a writer I really enjoy. It's Nerdist Managing Editor Alicia Lutz. She's written some great pieces on one of the most anticipated movies of 2017, Wonder Woman, directed by Patty Jenkins. So I was really happy that Alicia had some time to talk to me about the very high expectations on the new movie, the female gaze in TV and film, and a few other things. Alicia Lutz, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start with Wonder Woman that we've talked about a lot on this show, and it's that's finally coming. You've even got to visit the editing with uh, Patty Jenkins. Are you looking forward to this? Uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to see what Patty Jenkins does. Um, as you mentioned, yeah, I did. I got to see go to the edit bay in London a couple months ago while she was about two thirds of the way through editing the film. Um, I got to see about 20 minutes worth of footage, um, which was incredible. And it's, and it's really exciting to see a female superhero finally get her due and get her due in a really kind of prescient time for us to have a female superhero out in the world getting shit done. (laughs) I'm going mother. If you choose to leave, you may never return. Who will I be if I stay? To the war. Well, technically the war is that way, but we got to go this way first. How can a woman fight in this? Who is this young woman? She's my... um, And... um, 
Diana, Princess of the Mist. Prince, Diana Prince. If you believe that this war should stop, help me stop it right now. What are you? You will soon find out. I feel like there's so much pressure on this movie. There's so much pressure on Patty Jenkins. Like people are sort of talking about it. Like if it isn't a masterpiece and everyone goes to see it, it's forever over for female superheroes and women directors of, of action. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that's sort of the hyperbole that comes with being a female anything in entertainment. Um, there's still, you know, we're still kind of holding on to, and I think it's getting better. I really do. I have to say that um, from the jump, but there is still the lingering idea and the lingering, you know, insecurity, Security about there's only room for one woman in any given field or given thing. And there's one of the moment and it's, that's it. Um, which is a very, you know, we're starting to realize, I think that that's a very ignorant way of mm -hmm. doing business. Um, and I think, I think that there would have been more pressure to the end on Patty if this movie had come out, you know, even three years ago. Um, I, so I think that that is, it's definitely true. It's less than it could have been, which is like sort of a weird silver lining, but mm -hmm. it is, it's undeniable that there is a certain pressure on Patty and on Wonder Woman and on anything that, that is a female led or female created vision um, for a project that can be scary or something to executives. Um, and so they feel as though, I don't know. Maybe they forget that there are many different ways to woman. Um, right. <laughs> there but is, is this there still is... true, though? Because I, I remember someone saying a while back that it's kind of a myth. It sort of started with the bomb when Catwoman bombed. But it's not really true that female action heroes aren't pulling audiences. Or, or, or is it still true? Oh, no. Women definitely pull in the audience, especially in action stuff. I think we can see that with Mad Max Fury Road, right? Like right. that movie when it came out was the greatest it's the greatest you know you still you still hear women kind of raving about that film and men too um i think it's just it's an older idea that you know it's it's with time people will fully get rid of it but i think it's it's just one of those lingering things that was a reality that is less it's becoming less of a reality as time goes on as as you know box office numbers come in and women led films are breaking in the money and it's 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 almost like you have to get the people that are high up, you know, the executives, they have to be, this has to be proven to them um, a little bit over and over again. Ugh, why do we have to prove everything over and over again? <laughs> <laughs> because we're not men. Um, no, I, uh, I think that it's, it's a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think there is just an old way of doing things. And some of the people that are up at the top still prefer doing their things the old way, or it's just a habitual thing. But I think that really in the last five years, especially that tide has turned and what used to be a reality, I think is more and more a myth. Right. What is the direction Patty is taking? And is it a dark version of Wonder Woman? Is it sort of the, the TV show happy version? Um, you know, Patty's really, in the 20 minutes of footage that I've seen thus far, uh, Patty's really doing something that is that is her own. You know, this is, she looks at Wonder Woman in a very, I would like to say practical way. Um, you know, she is 
a hero that happens to be a woman. Um, and the, the ethos of wonder woman is, is where is how she looks at this film and how she looks at telling this story. It's not, you know, we talk a lot about DC and the types of movies that they make, um, Mm -hmm. and the types of comics, comic heroes that they portray. Um, Wonder Woman has the sun in it. It's really nice. We got the sun introduced to the DCEU, which is wonderful. Um, You know, this is not a film that is a dark and brooding, angry Wonder Woman, like skulking about screen, being like, oh, dumb men, let me fix this world for them. You know, she's (laughs) she's an outsider. And to that end, you get a lot of humor and a lot of it's not the Ben Affleck version. No, 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 no. This is not this is not Batfleck um, in Wonder Woman form. Gal Gadot has uh, a really great handle on this character, and she's strong, but she's also she's not insecure about what she doesn't know. She just goes in. She knows she's very and on the other side of that, she's very secure with what she knows and what she believes, and that propels her character forward in such a powerful way. And I think that it's going to do well at the box office, at least I hope, because there's so much more to be explored with what Wonder Woman can do and and what female superheroes can do and what that point of view. And female directors with this kind of budget too. Oh my God, yes. It's so it's so amazing to see, you know, I Patty Patty really does some beautiful work in this film um you know Themyscira is absolutely stunning um and her direction really brings a lot of uh nuance to the like the smaller emotional moments um and also to the big huge action scenes I mean I we didn't get any of the footage when I was at the edit bay but you see it in the trailers right those the battle scenes on the beaches of Themyscira that is something that First of all, must be insanely complicated to put together with horses on a beach right, with right. actors, you know, and the way that it looks just I really think it's going to it's going to be very exciting. Right. Um, and I'm really I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I hope it's great. There's a lot of talk now about the female gaze um, that's happening a lot in, in TV. If the listeners aren't familiar, there was a term coined in 75, I think it was, by a film theorist named Laura Mulvey, the male gaze. Um, and since there were so many male directors and writers, men were looking at women through the through the camera, so to speak. And now we have a lot of new shows with the female gaze, like Handmaid's Tale and, and things like that. What do you make of this? You know, it's... It's a very small, nuanced difference, but it has a huge impact, I think, especially in portrayals of things like sex scenes, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think a really great example actually is Outlander. Um, that is a show um, on stars starring Katrina Balfi and Sam Hewen based on the Diana Gabaldon novels, um, the Outlander series. And there is one scene in particular, uh, The Wedding, which is there is there's so much couch in all of that, but you get the female gaze in that. And you, what you see with the female gaze is really looking at the world and looking at people in the way that women do. And I think that it's very, it's more evident in sex scenes because 
typical sex scenes are shot with a very kind of lusty desire on the female body right. and the female reaction to what is happening in a sex scene. Um, you never really get the other side of that. And, or you, you know, you never really get the emotional nuance of what might be happening in internally during what a sex scene um, with a female when it's male, not saying that it's all the case all the time, but it is something that it's, it's so, it's such a small nuanced, tiny detail that it would be impossible unless you're cognitively thinking about it Mm -hmm. in the moment when you're directing a scene, you wouldn't necessarily think to readjust the way you look at things because the way you experience the world, especially as a director is helpful to how you portray the world on screen. So how do they do it in Outlander? I mean, let me rephrase that. <laughs> they do it in Outlander. <laughs> but how, how how do is it depicted sort of in Outlander, as you were saying, that, that sex scene? So, yeah, with Outlander, it um, had a real care and a real... There's, there's something with the female gaze where you get, um, in this particular instance, a little bit more... Um, sort of empathy into the moment. So with, uh, in Outlander in particular, Claire and Jamie, um, it's their wedding night. Claire, it's a, it's a full role reversal in every way. So Claire is the one who had been married before. And so, you know, she's a very, and she's a very sexually comfortable, liberated woman Mm -hmm. from the 1940s cut to, she has, she falls back through time to 1790s Scotland. Um, and her husband that she has to marry in order to stay safe is a virgin. And so she has to kind of take the reign. So already usually in sex scenes, there's a different power dynamic going on. Um, so that's been flipped. And also the, portrayal of the actual act itself Mm -hmm. um there's focus on jamie's face and jamie's reaction and jamie's experience with what is happening um and i think that that's just it's something so small that you wouldn't think of until you see it on screen you're like oh this is this is different like it's it's weird to see his you know how he's experiencing this versus focusing on how a woman experiences right but those little changes are sort of what changes perception um with absolutely and i was thinking in handmaids tell you when their sex scenes are also very i mean basically you're just seeing offred's face she's just sort of being thumped and it's very cold and you really sort of have her perspective on something that seems just yeah i would say it is directed by a woman even though i guess the showrunner is bruce miller but um, anyway, yeah, um, Reed Morano directed the first three episodes of Handmaid's Tale, and um, I've seen the first seven now. And I think all of the episodes are directed by women, or a good majority of them are. Um, and yeah, that scene is devastating. Um, the ceremony scene in particular that you're talking to, um, speaking about, because there is such a, you know, when you think about sex scenes, often they're to move the story forward in terms of like an emotional connection between characters or, you know, to create a conflict or something. Mm -hmm. Um, This scene is like the crux of a horror movie. You know, this is something where she is completely, you see her kind of disassociating and you you see through not actually, through not seeing the act at all, um, how horrific yeah, it is. You know, rape. you don't see actual penetration. It's it's just her face and it's just, you know, uh, it's it's just Commander Waterford's face and Serena Joy's face. And it's 
you see so much more through saying nothing. They show so much more of the emotional frailty of the situation they're in and how complicated and how not joyful this is for anyone um, and how that has such a psychological effect on the community that's created in Gilead and the society that they've fostered of repression and strict adherence to religious guidelines. Right, right. But you do think that if this would be directed by a man, that there would be a sort of slightly different edge to it? You know, it's tough to say because, you know, there are men that do understand the female gaze and they understand a little bit more um, of a what's the word I'm looking for? I I don't want to. Yeah, because I don't want to say that it wouldn't have been successful, but I think it scenes like that become all the more powerful when you have the general, generally more oppressed voice getting the final say in those situations and in those scenes. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there are lots of male writers and directors who, who definitely get it, so to speak, but there's something happening in the culture where the sort of gratuitous depictions of rape and violence are shown in a different way, uh, which I think yeah. is a good thing. Recontextualizing that stuff is so important because we can all, you know, as a society get stuck in certain portrayals or certain ideas of how and why things should be the way they are. And through, you know, creating tiny cracks in that veneer by allowing for different depictions, you allow for not only so much wider representation of different experiences, but you allow for a different avenue for your stories to be told. You know, you allow for newly complicated, newly nuanced, different, you know, newly enriched sort of ways of looking at the world. And that only creates better storytelling. And how could you want anything other than a multitude of different ways to tell different stories? Right, right. Well, I'm going to switch gears now. We've, this is something we've talked about that's come up during this season of my show a lot because it, it's quite prevalent. And that is the um, depiction of religion that seems to be a big trend in storytelling right now. And you really broke this down in an excellent article recently. So I wanted to, to have a chance to talk a little bit about that and, and this trend. There's been a big change in drama and storytelling since sort of the touched by an angel and and seventh heaven depictions of religion in their storylines. Can you talk a little bit about how that's changed? Yeah. You know, I think that religion is a very tricky topic for people to discuss. It's, it's even more personal than politics. It's something that you believe that defines an unknown. So there's always a level of unknown. There's always a level of insecurity. But, and often, you know, religion is used in a very one note way, you know, either they're the bad religious zealots or the crazy culty brainwashers. Um, and, or, you know, the savior for the people, but religion ultimately is a human construct to understand something that we can't, we physically don't have a tangible reason for why the world exists and why we're here. And while we 
generally have looked at that in a very black and white way of either you're right or you're wrong. Um, TV in particular, I think, is sort of looking at it in a very different way. Like, well, what if you what if you aren't wrong, like with the leftovers or Mm -hmm. what if the belief that you have is what powers the things you believe in, like with American gods um, or, you know, with Handmaid's Tale, the you know, what happens when you become so devout, you put up blinders. You know, there's there's so much more to discuss about religion beyond is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it real? Is it fake? And I think that we're finally starting to see that, um, especially with those three shows that I mentioned, which kind of look at religion free of the typical judgments that we as a society put on religion or the own, our own personal biases that we put on religion. But these, these shows that tend to be sort of about control and power and radical beliefs somehow, at least Handmaid's Tale, where sort of women are stripped of their rights and there's a lot of it, about these older shows, he's touched by an angel and seven of them, they seem so... I'm sorry if I'm, I'm just putting, this doesn't sound offensive or anything, but more sort of goody two shoes about, you yes. know, how we're, you know, about religion. Then there seems to be the theme today when one is depicting it. Would you say that's true? Um, absolutely. Well, I think that a lot of, a lot of people want to respect other people's beliefs and want to, and in doing that have made a very one note idea of what religion is. But ultimately religion has always been about control. I mean, if you go back to the Greeks, they, you know, they created their version of religion as a way to, you know, entertain people. And in other cultures, you know, it was definitely about a societal control and and ways to bring order about the, the way that whatever community that created whatever religion um, operated. So this definitely looks at that in a different way, right? Like Mm -hmm. Handmaid's Tale looks at control in a much more nefarious way, whereas American Gods looks at the control that religion and gods have in a much more playful way. It's, It's a whole different world that is, you know, still existing on our world. And, um, the play of that is very interesting. What's a god? They're real if you believe in them. So who are you? You wouldn't believe in me if I told you. This is my man, Shadow Moon. He does not know our world. I'm easing him in. You've gotten yourself mixed up in some really weird shit, Shadow. You think I'm spent? You're as forgotten and as unloved as any of us. I'm doing just fine. You're trying to start a war? We're at war already, and we're losing. And similarly, I love what The Leftovers is doing this season with religion. You know, um, not to spoil it for anybody that hasn't been kept watching The Leftovers, which if you haven't, turn this off right now for a second. <laughs> yes. Because I'm going <laughs> to... Season three is like, we'll spoil every other season for you. You know, they're looking at what happens when, you know the second coming of Jesus comes to town and nobody knows, Mm -hmm. not even Jesus has any idea that he's the second coming of Jesus, you know? And what does that story look like? And how are, how is religious belief created and how, how is it, how does it subjugate not only the people that create it, but also the people that are bystanders in that system. Um, And it's fascinating. But do you have a theory as to why this, 
we're so open to talking about religion like this now in our drama? Well, um, I think it's twofold, right? It's it's the next taboo topic. It's the thing that, you know, in polite company, you're not supposed to talk about. So mm-hmm. obviously TV's like, well, why don't we talk about it? And also, you know, I think that there is a lot of discussion right now about belief and about religion. I mean, people's religious beliefs are hugely hugely influential with the sort of global rise of nationalism, right? Right. Um, Because some people, their belief is dictates how their countries operate or their belief dictates how they want their country to operate. Um, Or, you know, there's just the blurring line of the separation of church and state here in the States, you know, and what does that mean? And to what end does adhering to those principles help or hurt a society. And I think that that's why this conversation is so resonant right now, because we are at this place as a species, as a world species, a global species, where we've outgrown the old modes of how we used to operate. And this happens every couple of generations. And one of the long held ways that people have been controlled or inform their own experience in terms of how they control themselves when they go, when they operate in the world is religion. So it makes sense to me that this would be happening at this time right now. And I think it's important that it's happening right now. But but even though, even though American gods is somewhat playful, but you know, leftovers is and and handmaid's tale, it it is quite more of a sort of scary dystopian version. And and then those sort of touched by an angel seventh heaven depictions of religion that were. Oh yeah. Because it's because they're much more human than touched by an angel or any of that other stuff was. This is, not looking at the celestial story. This is looking at the human reality and the human reality is not that one note. Life is completely made up of gray area. Right. And that makes for. This is the gray areas. Yeah. Sometimes more gritty and and darker uh, representations of something, you know, it's, Religion is one of those things that is very often depicted as a fixer and as this happy place of solace, but that's just not the case for everyone. The answer to everything. Yeah. But what about depictions of sort of other religions? I know there was a lot of talk, you remember, sort of around 24 and things like that about how Muslims were depicted in the Jewish faith and who who was the baddie and who was the goodie in terms of where they came from and things like that. Has that changed? You know, I think it's starting to change. I think that we still see a lot of Muslim terrorists on TV. And I think that that's because that's an easy touchstone for a wide demographic of people that watch and ingest pop culture, TV, movies, what have you. I just want to lastly sort of change gears and ask you what you um, are most looking forward to coming up, film or TV, or, or, or what what are you really wanting to see besides oh, Wonder Woman? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I'm really looking forward to the last season of Orphan Black, mm-hmm. um, which is a BBC America show. Um, I it's it's an incredible show. Oh, love it's, that. It, Final season is this season, and I I can't believe it. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how that story wraps up, and and 
how that and how I'm just really excited to see that story wrap up. And I, I think it's an incredible show and everybody involved in making it really takes a lot of care to tell very interesting stories. Um, I'm also really looking forward to seeing more of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel with mm-hmm which is Amy Sherman Palladino's show for Amazon. Um, Rachel Brosnahan stars in it and she's incredible. Um, she was in one of my favorite shows, Manhattan, um, which was a show that was just gone too soon from the world. And uh, it's funny. It's basically, it's loosely based on the story of Joan Rivers um, and it just looks incredible. And I think that it's really nice and fun to see a look at how, it was to be a female comedian in the fifties, you know, a different story. It's an interesting way into telling a story. And I'm really excited about that one as well. Well, both that one and Tatiana Maslany and then orphan black, two incredible women to look forward to female gaze. Yeah. <laughs> this was so interesting. Thank you so much, Alicia. Thank you for taking your time. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Alicia Lutz, managing editor over at thenerdist.com. So go read her stuff there. Wonder Woman premieres at the end of May here in Europe and in early June in the U.S. And the shows we talked about are all out now. And thank you for listening to Pop Culture Confidential. Take a few to subscribe to the show and rate us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Visit us on Twitter at PodPopCulture and on PopCultureConfidential.com. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, the music by Carl Boy, and produced by Renee Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling Biro. Thanks so much for listening. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. (laughs) (laughs) Right.